Good morning, like he said, my name is JC Cole. I am a senior at Oklahoma State University this year studying aviation management. I have been a part of CREW for three years now and I was truly blessed to be a part of that ministry. So please join me this morning in reading from the word. We'll be reading from John chapter 13, beginning with verse 31. When he had left, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Lord Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Jesus, let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you, I am going away to prepare a place for you If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord said, Philip, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, JC. Thank you. Grateful for your ministry. Aaron mentioning that they have been here for about four years reminded me of one of my most joyful encounters. When they got here, they, they were trying to figure out where they were going to land at, at church. Um, and we were one of the options. And so I don't remember who called me first, but they, they asked, could you come over to our house and... Um, and just kind of answer some of the questions about the church. And I'm like, sounds great. Love it. Got over to their house. They have refreshments. That should have told me something. They were prepared. And if you've ever met his wife, she pulled out a legal pad with so many pre-written questions. Two and a half hours later, I'm leaving the Fenderson house. And I called Jim and I said, I think we passed. I don't know. But the whole, <laughs> the whole church was just interviewed, and I hope I had the right answers. Anyway, thank you. Been a joy having you guys these last four years. Um, Aaron had two questions. I don't remember what they were, but they were quick. I think it was, do you want tea or lemonade? And then Megan had the rest of them. So, grateful for them. Um, Now that the fall is thoroughly underway and we have a lot of new people, a lot of new families, new individuals, a lot of new college students, um, I introduce myself. My name is Ryan Vincent. I'm one of the ministers here at Sunnybrook, uh, specifically the adult discipleship pastor, which that title is sufficiently vague. So I kid you not, one of the questions I get more often than any other, 
so what do you do around here? And I don't take any offense to that. I think it's a pretty funny question. Um, I usually describe myself, for you baseball fans, as kind of a utility infielder. Uh, when the starters have to be away, I can go fill a gap. That's kind of what I do, and I just play around at a bunch of different things. Um, but as a, this, someone who, not that anybody else is not concerned with discipleship, but I have to think about it in a, in a what do we do, how do we make Christians, how do we bring people to the Lord and then grow them into maturity? So a lot of that involves meeting with people, going to the Fenderson's house, doing that kind of thing. Some of it involves asking the really hard theologically deep questions like, what does it tell you about a man whenever you see what kind of pants he's wearing? I'm just kidding. That's not a real question, but we have some pants. <laughs> I show you a pair of pants like that, and you could probably guess some things about this individual. I bet, uh, I bet his hands are probably calloused, probably spends a lot of time outside, isn't afraid to be around large mammals. <laughs> Go to the next one. Different, just diff not even wearing socks. So this is a different kind of pants. Uh, probably softer hands, maybe works at a desk, I don't know, but probably real, a nice put together guy. Okay, third one. Look at those pants. Those are hilarious. I love these kind of pants. I would never be able to pull them off, but it cracks me up. This is not some sort of museum piece. This is not someone who spends their weekends going to Renaissance fairs. This is an actual, if we go to the next one, here he is in all his glory, Dr. Francis Schaeffer, one of the most prominent theologians of the 20th century, just walked around like this, dressed like an extra for Pirates of the Caribbean. That's how he did, that's how he did his life. Um, that's probably like 1981, and he's still wearing pants like that. You got to be a confident person to do that. You got to know what you're talking about. Um, but I, I bring him up because he spent his life um, asking questions from the Christian perspective of culture. He, uh, he wanted to understand the interplay between a culture that he understood to be very broken and life lived out in service to the gospel within the church, but has to do so inside that culture. So he has famous, a number of books that are really, really famous, but I want to read this one quote because I think our passage this morning actually integrates with this rather well. This is what Dr. Schaefer says. He says there's a flow to history and culture. He was fascinated by the fact that people continue to, like, we, we go through these cycles and we run into the same issues over and over and over again. He says there's a flow to history and culture. This flow is rooted in what people think, and what they think will determine how they act. So he was a, a philosopher, an apologist. He was really concerned with how does the mind affect everything else? And then he looks around at the world and he says, there's violence and a breakdown in society up to the point at which it is unsafe to walk through the streets and through many of the cities of the world. On the other hand, there is a danger of increasing authoritarianism to meet the threat of chaos in our own countries and internationally. He says, everything is falling apart, so do we just endure it? Or do we maybe overreach to control it and subdue it? And then he asks this question, shall we despair and give in? And then his famous line, how shall we then live? Dr. Schaefer was very interested in understanding how Christians, with the convictions that we hold, and the, the, the renewed spirit that God has gifted us, how do we do that 
in a broken and depraved place like this world. Our text today, John chapter 13, the back half of 13 into 14, starts out a section of John's gospel that is commonly known as Jesus' final discourse. Remember, last week, Judas has just left the Last Supper, and he is on his way to scheme and to betray Jesus. Um, And now Jesus turns to his disciples, and he's answering this question, how then shall we live? He's going to prepare them from in chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and then 17. He'll pray for them. And over the, those chapters, it's, it's, uh, it's, Jesus has stepped out of the public eye and he's having these very private, personal conversations with his disciples, preparing them for the life to come when things change. He knows that it's about to change way more than they do, but he's preparing them. It starts out in verse 31. When he, Judas, had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. And we have to pause here. This is such an important part of what Jesus is, I mean, he's starting this whole series of chapters with this idea of The glory shared between father and son. And this isn't glory in the same sense that we often describe glory. You have to read glory as John means glory. And so you know what's coming. When John talks about Jesus' glory, he's talking about Jesus' passion, his cross. And Jesus is going to the cross, and in so doing, the father will be glorified, and in return, the father glorifies the son. So I think we need to stop and really ask some gospel-y questions of these few verses before we move on. First, how in the world is the Father glorified by the betrayal, the torture, and the murder of his son? How is he glorified? And it's increasingly fashionable to actually criticize God's program of redemption as being unjust, Jesus had, it was undeserved. There have been times where I've even heard it described as cosmic child abuse. God the Father unleashing unnecessary, unearned pain on an innocent victim like Jesus. Yet Jesus says that it gives his Father glory, what he's about to do. So how does this glorify the Father? We could spend weeks talking about all the intricate details and all the theological implications of Jesus' cross. Um, But I just want to note a few ways that this glorifies the Father. First of all, in Jesus, in his crucifixion and eventual resurrection and ascension, God's justice is revealed. It's quite the opposite of the cosmic child abuse complaint. It's not that God is unjust, it's that in Jesus he's perfectly just. Romans 3 famously says, God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Why? So that he would be just and justify the one who has faith 
in Jesus. God cannot be mocked and sin must be dealt with. And so his justice is upheld as Jesus gives the ultimate penalty for all human sin. His justice is revealed. Two, God's faithfulness is revealed in Jesus' death on the cross. This brings him glory. His faithfulness is revealed. In what way? Well, in in Genesis chapter 3, all the way back in the great sin chapter, you have what's known as the proto-gospel. God says this. God says this. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel from the day that sin entered the world into the human race. God has promised to fix it. He's promised to fix it. Later in Isaiah's uh, prophecies, in chapter 53, the suffering servant is described. He says, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. 800 years before Jesus shows up. That prophecy is uttered. Immediately, sin enters the world, and God says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to crush this snake. 800 years before Jesus shows up, God's still promising to fix it. And when Jesus is lifted up on that cross, as we'll see later on in John's gospel, God's faithfulness to his promise is revealed, is demonstrated. So if God's justice is revealed in Jesus, and his faithfulness is revealed in Jesus, and both of those things bring God great glory and honor. His love is also revealed in Jesus. Romans 5 famously says, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is going to be raised in glory on a cross. And in so doing, the Father is glorified because God is demonstrating his love for people who do not deserve his love. God's justice, his faithfulness, and his love, I can, I can get on board with those things pretty quickly. The glory thing is harder for me because it feels so unmerited on our part. Listen to this. Because in Jesus, God's glory is revealed, get it, but then it's shared with us. It's shared with us. I totally understand the idea that Jesus and the Father have some mutual glorification arrangement going on. But then we see at the end of the final discourse in John chapter 17, this pouring over of God's glory as it rains down on Jesus' followers, which to me is the most mind-boggling thing. John 17, 22, I have given, this is Jesus praying about us, I have given them, his followers, the glory you have given me. Why? So that they may be one as you and I are one. So we get to participate in the inner Trinitarian unity of God's glory? I don't even know how to explain that. It's one of those things I read it and all I know to do is marvel at it. So the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And in return, the Father will be glorified, and thus the Son will himself be glorified. And the natural question would be, okay, um, and what's next, Jesus? Verse 33, Jesus goes um, like a tender father. He says, little children, 
You get a sense he knows that their lives are about to be completely upended. They're going to be confused. They're going to be scared. And he, with, with tenderness and compassion, he says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. If I hear that, if I've devoted the last three years of my life, which is becoming increasingly dangerous, to following this man, and then he says, I'm leaving and you can't come, I think I would start to panic. And Jesus launches into this extended series of instructions on what it looks like to live life as members of this church they don't even know will be formed yet. So he gives them a new command. Verse 34, Jesus says, first of all, you can't come. I'm leaving, you can't come, but here's what you're going to do. I'm going to give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. To be honest, it took me a while to come to grips with um, how this command might actually be considered new. I don't think this is the first time the, the, the creator of the universe has called his creation to be loving. But it's new because it has a new reference point. Like imagine um, if you are a first century Jewish person your life is, by and large, oriented towards the law, the Torah. The temple complex governs much of your connection to the creator God. The priestly system mediates much of that. The sacrificial system is in place. The, the, the festivals, the ritual holidays. And Jesus says, I have a new command. You're going to love one another. And they may be whispering, I don't, that's not really a new idea, Jesus. As I have loved you. Oh, okay. So there's a new standard. And you have to remember, this is coming out of the foot washing. This is coming out of what may be the most supreme example of turning the other cheek, handing Judas a morsel and letting him go do what he's going to do. See, Jesus has modeled with his disciples, and how much more will he model this when he gets to the cross? A self-sacrificial, others-oriented type of love that for their good constantly orients his followers to the Father, constantly defers to the Father. That's what kind of love Jesus has thus far modeled for these guys. And what's fascinating, I can get the imitation part, but I'm fascinated by the result and by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. So in a sense, there is um, an interrelationship that you and I have as brothers and sisters in Christ that is governed by Christ-like, sacrificial, others-oriented love. But in a sense, it's supposed to be done on display for others to see. And that caught me. Do this so that others will see it. And I'm like, well, maybe does this really jive with the rest of Scripture that talks about maybe doing your good deeds in secret and not letting one hand know what the other hand's doing? You know, I, but the final discourse talks like this frequently. 
Jumping ahead to John 17, Jesus praying for you and I, for his followers, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe you sent me. Jesus is is establishing a a relationship network inside this this burgeoning church that is governed by Christ-like love so that others will see it and a unity that is designed for others to see it and to believe and not to be impressed with how nice you are and not to be amazed at how we can stand shoulder to shoulder in unity, but all of it is to orient us toward Jesus. It all keeps coming back to him. I've given them the glory you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you loved me. There's this incredible testimonial side of how you and I are to do life in the community of faith. There's this witnessing that takes place as you and I love one another, as you and I remain unified, that testifies to the one who animates all of this, Jesus. Fascinating new command to love one another as I have loved you so that the world may see that you are my disciples. And then it's like Peter and Thomas and Philip are hung up on something we haven't resolved yet. They don't even really want to talk about that, at least not in this narrative. They're more concerned with, hey, where are you going? Can I come? You said, back to the you leaving part, Jesus. Where are you going? Can I come? Jesus says no. I mean eventually, but not right now. Tells Peter, you know, you'll betray me. Um, you'll deny me. And no, but don't worry, you'll come eventually. To Thomas, he's like, well, how will we know the way? If we're supposed to go eventually, how will we know the way? And Jesus is like, "I'll, I'll tell you the way. Philip's like, okay, so, you know, but can we see the Father? And Jesus is like, right here, bud. You've seen the Father. And again, imagine their context where the Torah, the temple, the priesthood governs all of the relationships to God. And Jesus wipes the table clean and puts it all on him. Puts it all on him. We have these flagship verses with this new command, and then, of course, the I am statement, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, in 14.6. But there's this one verse that caught me in between. It's actually chapter 14, verse 1. And I wonder if it's a really good um, descriptor of what Jesus is actually doing in the whole exchange. It says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Don't let your heart be troubled. And that's, this whole narrative running from the end of 13 to the end of chapter 17 is this extended exercise on Jesus Tenderly comforting his followers. And though Jesus tells them, I'm leaving, 
the rest of the passage could maybe be labeled as good news for troubled hearts. They're unsettled. And it's at every turn in the story that Jesus, the one who knows all things, asked his followers, will you trust me? Where are you going? Can I come? Trust me. How will we know how to get there? Trust me. Can we have access to the Father? Trust me. And in Jesus, the plan continues to unfold. And then we get to that huge, massive verse. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They have the Torah, they have the temple, they have the priesthood, and that governed all of their access to the Father, and Jesus says, me. You can't get to the Father unless you go through me. Now, it's interesting how he says this. He doesn't say, I can show you the way. He doesn't say that I can point you to the truth. He doesn't say, I can offer you life, even eternal life. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. So if, if Jesus is the way, he's the, he is the path to God. If he, is, if he is the truth, then he is the ultimate authority Remove all other authoritative systems. And if he is the life, then he is the goal that we're oriented toward. It's like Jesus is not only the way, he's the destination. He's the point. This may sound like a crazy thing to say, but sometimes it catches me off guard how obsessed with Jesus the New Testament is. That's normal. It's the New Testament. It's about him. The Old Testament's about him too. But it sure seems obsessed with him at times. Um, because how many of us were initially drawn to the gospel and to the community of faith because we saw like an ability to fix the brokenness in us that we couldn't otherwise manage? And Jesus fixes brokenness. But how many of us were drawn to the gospel, were drawn into the community of faith because we suffer with incredible amounts of guilt over what we've done? Jesus can deal with guilt. Many of us were drawn to the community of faith and to the gospel because of the world. We've tried other things. We've looked into other things. We've done the Solomon way of just trying to satisfy ourselves with all these worldly things and it just keeps letting us down. So we gave in. And it's true. Everything else will let you down. But I wonder how utilitarian the gospel becomes over time. Hear me, God is so good and gives incredible gifts. He does. Jesus will even say, like I, you, even you, pathetic human beings that you are, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does God give good gifts? He gives great gifts. But I don't, I don't want to let the gospel become a means to a gift 
and just blow past the one who gives the gifts. Jesus can deal with all these things that we come to him for. But ultimately, we need to come to him for him. And hear me. Um, I know this sounds somewhat esoteric and fuzzy. Before the first service, the band met down here. And um, Kyle was kind of walking through everything that was going to happen this morning. And he asked me, Ryan, Vinny, he said, Vinny, can you tell us like a summary of your sermon? And I said, yeah, I kind of, I, I went through the, the gist of it. And I said, What's, what I'm really struck by, though, is that even in, with the, like the, the practicality of love one another in a sacrificial way, this, this whole passage doesn't move me to do something. It's moving me to stare and marvel at the identity of Christ. When he starts to describe himself the way that he does, when he starts to remove the importance of all other things, when the table is, is wiped clean and they're standing alone as the object of our affection, our salvation, and the glory of God the Father is just Jesus. And so I told the band, I don't know, like this is just one of those passages where you just marvel at who he is. Jesus can deal with all sorts of issues that we bring to him. It's not bad to take your guilt to Jesus. That's exactly what we talked about last week. And Judas didn't do that. He should have run to Jesus. Peter's denial has been described here, and it will happen. And we know he will run to Jesus. So it's not like Jesus doesn't fix things, doesn't give good gifts. But everything, all these incredible things he can do for you and I, continues to end up in the same spot. Like its point is that we end up living a rich life of communion with Jesus. Jesus is both the way, but he's also the destination. Have you ever asked yourself what you most desire to get out of being a Christian? I hope for all of our sake that at, over time the answer just becomes life with Jesus. And there's a windfall of benefits. We get each other. We have salvation. We have life lived eternally in the presence of God. But I want to, I want to, to, to think about how I, how I arrange my religious life such that Jesus is the point of it all and not just a means to some other end. So like I said, as a, you know, we consider questions of discipleship here at the church, um, 
There's lots of things we can do to grow in maturity, to enrich our faith. Um, My prayer is that when we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name, that it will draw us closer to him. And that over time, my litany of requests will shrink as I spend more time in prayer with my Savior. We will spend countless hours in incredible effort and resources teaching you this book. But if it just becomes more information sitting alongside other information, I don't think that's the point. You know, we can learn. It's not a bad thing to know things. But when we read the words of Jesus, I pray that it would move our hearts closer to Jesus himself. When we live out our lives as a body of believers, and we start to internalize this new commandment to love one another in a sacrificial, others-oriented kind of way, so that others will see that we do indeed follow Jesus, and in such a way that Jesus will be the focus, I pray that I will see Jesus in you as you love me. And I pray that you'll see Jesus in me as I love you. I just really don't want to be known as, oh, he's just a really nice guy. That's what nice guys do. I want it to be clear that this is Jesus in me. I pray that as we love one another, it will draw the lost souls of Stillwater toward Jesus. I pray that we'll find ways to love one another publicly and have a reason to explain why. And it's not because we're just really nice. We live in an unjust world that is clamoring for justice, seemingly at the tip of a spear. Dismantle all sorts of good things for the sake of justice so-called. We live in a world where faithfulness is not readily found. People don't keep their word, and generally we just don't trust people. We live in a world that is far from loving. And if you don't love as I love, then I can just cancel you. We we live in a world where I don't need to necessarily campaign for justice reforms, or I don't need to necessarily teach people to tell the truth, and I don't need to necessarily teach people to be kinder. I need to introduce them to Jesus, who is himself the one who reveals the justice of God the one who reveals the faithfulness of God, the one who reveals the love of God, and the one who will share his glory with you and I. And I don't even know what to do with that information, except I know that the way that you and I live is supposed to communicate it to the broken world desperately needs to meet Jesus. Have you ever heard the phrase, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words? I've never really liked that phrase. 
because um, I've, I've never niced anyone into the kingdom. I just, I, I get its intent. It's saying live a life that is so incredible that it preaches the gospel, and then on occasion you may have to say something, as long as you're not too uncomfortable. No, I don't, I, I don't really like that phrase, but I get it. You know, about a year ago, our college ministry came back from working with an organization in Albuquerque. And they had these shirts. So you'll see like our college leaders and, and students wear these shirts. It says, be good news. And when I saw that, I thought, that's a pretty cool shirt. Now their intent is not to be the gospel by looking, you know, gospelly. The intent of the ministry is be good news in people's life in such a way that you'll earn the right, you'll earn an opportunity to share the good news with them. I wonder if that in some sense redeems the statement. And maybe we should just make the statement, preach the gospel always and use words frequently. But be good news so that we can have an opportunity to share the good news. And the good news has to be a relationship with Jesus. Everything else are just additional benefits. Jesus is the way. He himself is the truth and he himself is the life. It all comes back to him. He is both the path and the destination. I want us to spend a few moments reflecting on um, some of the ideas that this passage has has given us. I want you to just, for a moment, ask yourself, do you find deep satisfaction in Jesus? Or are we prone to want the things he can give us? I want you to spend just a moment asking the Lord, the Father, to help you find greater purpose and deeper joy in living a life in rich communion with Jesus himself.